0: through this integration, the art and the science, we really awaken in us this heart of wisdom. And the heart of wisdom means seeing the true nature of phenomena, seeing the true nature very deeply and very profoundly. It means going from the level of concept, from the level of our ideas and opinions about things, to the nature of the reality of it. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. Often we speak of meditation practice as being an investigation of the mind, looking into the mind and exploring the mind. But in our Western understanding of that word, we often have a limited view or a limited understanding of what's meant by mind. So often from a Western perspective, we think of mind as meaning intelligence or intellect or the discriminating faculty. In the Buddhist sense, the word mind is much more expansive. The mind is not limited to the thinking process, but rather includes in it Everything we also associate with the heart, of feelings and emotions and intuition. So when we say that meditation is an exploration of the mind, we mean it in this very expanded sense. An exploration of the thought process, of the feeling process, of the intuitive process of the emotional process, an investigation of silence. One of my teachers once gave a talk on 21 kinds of silence, took three hours of talking. (laughs) In many Asian languages, the word for heart and mind is the same, and I think to a large extent in our practice, in our meditation, what we're doing is bringing these two together again. What we're doing in our practice is awakening or realizing the heart of wisdom. There are two different perspectives that have a bearing on the undertaking of meditation. The first perspective is the seeing of meditation as a science of the mind. And in one respect, the power of the Buddha's enlightenment Was the crystal clarity with which he understood the workings of this mind, mind in the expanded sense. He was able to understand all the elements of this mind and body, all the elements of experience, how they interacted, how they related to one another. He was able to understand the laws which govern their relationship. Seeing that what we are is a process of conditioning, that things are not happening accidentally, or chaotically, or randomly. And that it's possible to understand this conditioning process, to see what kinds of causes bring about suffering, what kinds of causes bring about freedom or happiness. In this respect, it's very scientific. It's an inquiry into the true nature of our experience. And what supports this scientific investigation is the form and the technique that we use. The other night, speaking in some detail, about the techniques of practice, the continuity of sitting and walking, of mental noting, of reporting. All of this supports the precision and the accuracy. We're able to see more clearly what it is that's going on. If our investigation, if our scientific investigation is sloppy, if our observation is sloppy, The results will be sloppy. We won't see clearly. We won't have that clarity that leads to understanding. So that's one perspective. That's one element, one wing of the practice. The other perspective is seeing meditation as an art. It's an art in the sense not only of seeing and observing accurately what's going on but it's an art in the way that we balance all the nuances of attitude in our mind. The nuances of relationship to experience. That's a great art. The most obvious one of the most obvious places to see, but to begin to see the nuances of attitude that we bring to our experience is in the tone of voice of the note. Probably in just the first day of practice, practice you've noticed how many different tones of voice the mind can come up with. The noting can be soft, it can be gentle, it can be loving. The noting can be angry, it can be discouraged, it can be aggressive. All of that has to do with or is revealing our relationship to what's being observed. And this is the art of the meditation, learning to balance that. Meditation is an art also in the sense of insight being intuitive. Awakening the heart of wisdom is an intuitive process. It's not deductive and it's not discursive. Through the form and through the technique, through the careful observation of what it is that's happening, and then beginning to refine the art of balance, we get a very direct and intuitive experience, realization of what it is that's true. And it's not based on any thinking process, it's based on this direct, intimate, personal experience. So meditation is an art in the sense that, in the sense that it's intuitive. Silence is the medium of this art. It's in the field of silence, it's in the depths of silence. That all experience manifests and reveals itself. And the deeper the silence, the more complete the silence, the more complete is our intuition of the true nature of things. So the question before us, the beginning of the retreat, and what I'd like to consider tonight is how we can combine the science of practice and the art of practice. How these two come together to become a single vehicle of understanding. And that's our challenge. That's the work that we have to do to integrate these two sides of ourselves. The first step in this undertaking of bringing together the art and science of meditation, the first step is to notice what's happening. It was expressed very succinctly by one Thai teacher, Thai meditation teacher. He said meditation is seeing what's what. That's what we're doing, we're seeing what's what, what actually is going on, what's happening. It's the quality of opening to experience. We may all have the idea that opening to experience would be a good thing. We approve of it, it's a nice idea. And yet, when we actually try to do it, when we try to sit in a continuous way and be open to what's what, we find that a lot of what's what is that we're closed. We're not open. We're closed to what's happening. We're closed in different ways. One way that we're closed very basic part of our lives, we're closed a lot with respect to to our sense perceptions, to sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations. It doesn't mean that we don't experience these things, but we don't experience them very fully because for the most part Our minds are lost in thought and distraction much of the time. How continuous, how sustained is our attention, is our awareness of a sound? How sustained is our attention of a taste or a flavor? Or of a smell? The tendency is we become aware of it for a moment and then our mind jumps off to something else. And so, in a very significant way, our senses have become dulled. What you will undoubtedly experience as the retreat goes on is a tremendous refinement of sense perception. The senses become so acute and so sensitive, and so refined, not because our ears have gotten bigger, or our tongue has changed, but because as the retreat goes on, our attention is more focused, our attention is more sustained, and suddenly there's a whole world of sense, sense perception, that begins to open up to us. And there's a tremendous beauty in that. So it's one way we find that we've been closed to things. As we begin to look to see what's what, we also find very often that our bodies are closed. That our bodies are closed in the sense of they're not necessarily being an open free flow of energy. As we turn our attention inward, very often, and for many people, what we find are a lot of tensions and blocks and tightness and pain and discomfort. And we don't like to feel that. We don't like to be with that. Often we're closed in the mental realm as well, in thoughts and emotions. Either by suppression or not being aware or obsessive involvement or repetitive patterns. We're not open in the sense of allowing the thoughts and emotions to wash through. To come and be there in the flow. We get hooked. We get caught. We get identified. So the first task in bringing together the art and the science of meditation is to open up, is to open ourselves to all these aspects of our experience. To open ourselves to the senses, through not being distracted, through opening ourselves to the body, through not being afraid to feel what's there, through opening ourselves to the mind, to allowing thoughts and emotions and images and feelings to arise and pass with a certain ease. Working with the body, that's a big part of the practice and it's very striking, very predominant for many people just at the beginning. Most people experience a fair amount of discomfort and pain in the beginning of meditation practice. And when I say beginning of meditation practice, that can be 15 years. Long beginning, not, I don't mean the first day. And so to begin to understand pain, to understand discomfort is essential if we're actually to open to it for to come to an understanding of it there are different kinds of pain and it's helpful to discriminate between them one kind of pain is a danger signal if you put your hand in fire and it starts to burn that is a message which is telling us something We had one friend who was sitting in a meditation hut in the woods, very arduous and earnest in his practice. He was sitting, rising, falling, rising, falling, smelling, 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 heat, 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 smelling, and the cottage was on fire. That's a signal, that's saying something. There are certain kinds of messages that we get that are very helpful to pay attention to and to respond to. And really all it takes is a little common sense. It doesn't take necessarily a great enlightened wisdom. The other kind of pain that's not particularly a danger signal is what could be called Dharma pain. That is the pain that we feel as we sit or sometimes even when we walk, which is not a danger signal, but rather the experience of the accumulation of tension that we've been carrying around and have never really looked at. That kind of pain is an essential part of the practice and actually a beginning of opening up. It's part of a healing process. The willingness to be with that discomfort. It may be heaviness, it may be tightness, it may be pressure. It may be aching, it may be pulling. There are a lot of different painful or uncomfortable sensations. It's Dharma pain when it's coming about because we're paying attention. Because our attention is actually more focused. That's when we begin to feel it. How to discriminate, how to tell whether it's a danger signal or a Dharma pain. Generally at the end of a sitting, if you get up and you begin walking for some time and the pain goes away quite quickly, then you can be assured that it is not a danger signal, that what you are experiencing in the sitting Is the pain of greater Dharma understanding, understanding of what's true, of what's what, what's actually happening. If the pain persists, and it gets stronger, you know, as you, as you move about, then it may be that it's a message saying you're straining too much. You should ease your posture a bit in the sitting. first step is opening to what's there, so we open to the pain. We open to feeling it. What we find very often is that as we try to open to feeling the various discomforts, we find that there's a lot of resistance in the mind. The mind doesn't like to do it and it really fights and it struggles. And it struggles in various ways. It struggles or resists feeling or opening to the pain with an attitude of self-pity. It's the poor me quality of mind. Poor me. Everybody else is in blissful samadhi and only my knee hurts or my back hurts and goes on and on and on, feeling sorry for oneself. It's not helpful. It's just a conditioned pattern of mind which keeps us locked into a reactive mode. Another kind of resistance, and perhaps it's stronger and more common, is that of fear. We're often afraid to feel the pain. We're afraid to open to it. We've been conditioned that way for a long time. And as long as the fear is there, and we're not aware of it, we're not able just to let it be and to still continue to look, what happens is that the fear conditions contraction. We pull away, we pull back. And as as we do that, we just become more tight in more tense. It's as if we're tying knot upon knot. Not a skillful response. It doesn't help. In the course of the three months, you will learn very much about the tricks of your mind. And our minds all have a lot of very clever strategies. One strategy that it uses quite often, and it's really just fear in disguise. Is the strategy of just in case. It's hurting a little bit now and I'll move just in case it becomes a real danger signal. Or I'm not tired now but I'll go to bed just in case I'm tired tomorrow morning. Or I'm not really hungry But just in case tea is meager, I'll have a second helping. And over and over again through the day our mind gets involved and rationalizes a not being with what's actually happening by this just-in-case syndrome. Be watchful of it, it's a trick, it's a strategy, a stratagem of the mind. There's self-pity, there's fear that comes with discomfort. There's another attitude, which is a kind of resistance, an unwillingness to open to what is actually present. And that's the quality of apathy in the mind. Apathetic attention, not caring. It's really, like fear in a way, it is a pulling back from what's going on. It's an indifference to what's going on. And a very good indication of the apathetic mind is when the noting becomes very mechanical. If you're noting rising and falling, and you're noting falling, and the abdomen is rising, that's saying something. It's saying even more If as you're aware of the rising, falling, you're noting, lifting, moving, placing. (laughs) It happens. (laughs) That's apathy. It's a quality of mind that doesn't really care what's going on. It's not very connected. And it's not to judge these things. It's not to judge the self-pity or the fear or the apathy. Rather, it's to recognize it. It's to see it. It's to see what's what. That's what's happening. And so those very attitudes should be looked at and noted so that we don't get caught or lost or identified with them. So the first step in our practice is opening to what's there. And we open to it by a very careful and precise and accurate noting and noticing. We see the resistance, we note that, we open to the pain, to the discomfort, we're willing to be with it. The next step is refining the art of meditation. And this means refining the quality of our relationship to the experience. How are we relating? What are the attitudes in the mind? And the art of practice in this sense brings about a tremendous sense of ease and joy and lightness because it's the art of balancing. It's the art of softening, of allowing. Instead of fighting, instead of struggling with what's going on, we develop and deepen and refine our ability to be receptive, to the receptive mode of practice. becomes The mind becomes very spacious, becomes very appreciative. Instead of choosing and selecting and comparing and liking this and disliking that, when the mind is in a receptive mode, It welcomes every object as something else to explore, as something else to understand. There is one mm, principle in practice which if you can mm, internalize now will be of tremendous help to you for the three months it will save you an untold amount of dukkha so listen carefully it's not true that pleasant is good and painful is bad that is not true. But that conditioning is so strong in our minds. We keep thinking that if we're having a pleasant experience, that's good. And it means our meditation practice is going well and we like it and we want more of it. And when it's painful or unpleasant, we have this deep condition to think that that's bad and we're not doing well. and. Our practice is hopeless, that conditioning is not a true reflection of the meditative process. The art of meditation is the ability to open to and be receptive equally, with equal interest and equal joy to what's pleasant, to what's unpleasant. Because our primary concern is not trying to hold on to something, but trying to understand what is the true nature of our experience? What is the true nature of pain? What is the true nature of pleasantness? If we can bring that attitude to the practice, then there's a tremendous willingness to be with whatever comes in the course of the day. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant, it's fine. This openness and appreciation brings about a balance of mind, it brings about or allows for a certain rhythm to begin operating. There is a rhythm in everything. There's a rhythm in nature, and there's a rhythm in sport, and there's a rhythm in music. There's a rhythm in our bodies, there's a rhythm in our minds. But just like Karen's story last night of people being on the river all day and wondering if they were going to camp in the same place, we are often very out of touch with the rhythms, the rhythm of life. When we find that rhythm, when we open to it, when we allow it to be there, we see that the breath, the sensations, thoughts, sounds... All aspects of our experience are happening very rhythmically. When we connect with that, the practice goes from being very effortful to being quite effortless. The rhythm carries the awareness. But the only way to connect with the rhythm is to be willing to be there in each moment for whatever presents itself. If we're busy choosing, and selecting and judging and liking this and not liking that, we never find the rhythm. We're always out of harmony. There is nothing in experience which is outside of our practice. Nothing you can experience falls outside the domain of awareness. And there'll be great highs and great lows and great pain and great joy and discouragement and elation. And it's all part of the practice. It's all to be noted. It's all to be observed. It's all to be felt. Is was a song a few years ago which had a great line in it. it. said, some people say that life is strange, but what I'd like to know is compared to what? And it just struck me that that, the whole practice is in that line. That life with all its strangenesses is of a peace, it's of a whole, it's of a unity. And it's exactly the same way with our practice. There is nothing outside of the practice. The art of meditation is the art of opening to it all. Being soft, being receptive, being allowing. It's the attitude in the mind of, it's okay, let me be with this. So the science of meditation is the precision, it's the accuracy, it's the form, it's the technique, it's the structure which allows for the careful observation. The art of meditation is balancing the qualities of mind so that we stay open, we stay receptive, we stay willing Through this integration, the art and the science, we really awaken in us this heart of wisdom. And the heart of wisdom means seeing the true nature of phenomena, seeing the true nature very deeply and very profoundly. It means going from the level of concept, from the level of our ideas and opinions about things, to the nature of the reality of it. This discrimination between concept and direct experience is a crucial development in the meditation and it's one we'll be talking about very often in the three months. What do you hear? Because everybody here is savvy. but if we just asked you know an ordinary person, what do you hear? I hear a bell. But do we really hear a bell? We don't hear a bell. Bell is a concept. Bell is an idea. Bell is a word we're using to describe a certain experience, when we're just with the hearing. Listen very carefully. In just the moment of hearing, is there a bell, is there an ear, is there a body? is just the experience of what there is, just that vibration of sound. Going from concept of bell or ear or body to the reality of the direct experience. You sit. to the end of the day. Your back hurts. Two different levels of understanding. One level of understanding, the conceptual level. My back hurts. My knee hurts. We solidify a sense of body, think that it's painful, contrast that way of viewing it to going in very carefully and subtly with a lot of attention and willingness to feel the sensations that are going on, the changing sensations. It might be vibration, or pulsing, or pressure, or burning, or pulling, or tearing. A lot of different sensations may be going on. In the moment of that awareness, where is the back? There's no back. Back is an idea. Back is a concept. But normally we're not paying careful enough attention to drop from the level of the concept to the level of just what's happening. But this drop, this change of level is absolutely essential if we want to come to a deeper understanding of what this, this mind and body, is all about. Because The true nature of experience is only revealed when our mind is no longer conceptualizing, staying on the level of concept. So when we, when we look directly, focus our mind, mind very carefully, what is it that we discover? We discover some extremely significant things about our experience. We discover that contrary to our normal understanding of this being some solid being, some solid entity, We discover that there's no solidity here at all, that it's all a mass of changing energy, changing sensations, changing vibration. If we looked at this body through an electron microscope, what would we say? We wouldn't see the body at all. It would be a totally different level of reality. Our minds can become an electron microscope. We can begin to experience the apparent solidity on another whole level, where we're seeing the constant flux and constant change, things are not even lasting a fraction of a moment. Very hard to stay attached when, when we see that things are changing that quickly, and in that sense it's very freeing. We begin to let go, we begin to surrender. We see the impermanence in a clearer way, we see the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of phenomena. Now, all our lives we try to hold on to things, whether it's the body, whether it's a certain state of being, a certain emotion, a certain relationship, a certain possession. We think that our happiness depends on having something holding on to it, becoming attached to it, not letting it go. And that creates a lot of dukkha, a lot of suffering for us. The more we see that, the more we let go, the easier the mind becomes. There's the enjoyment of what's there, there's the opening to what's there, but there's not the grasping, there's not the attachment. We see the impermanence, we see the dukkha, the insecurity. And we begin to see what is at the heart, which is really at the heart of wisdom. It's at the heart of the Buddha's enlightenment and our own realization, which is the understanding of the selfless, egoless nature of this mind and body. That there is no self, no I, no me To whom things are referring or around which things are evolving. But this sense of I, this sense of self is so strong. We're so conditioned to identify with thoughts and with emotions and with the body and with sensations. We've established this pattern for so long, perhaps for lifetimes, of considering all this. This is who I am. And so we put onto everything this identification. My thought, my feeling, my body, my reaction, my judgment, my happiness. And the my is extra. And so as our practice develops, we begin to stop adding that to the flow of experience. We see that all there is is the arising and vanishing moment after moment, phenomena of mind, phenomena of body, that's what we are. We are a flow of changing phenomena. There's no core, there's no central essence, which is me. That is a radically different way of understanding. And it's a tremendously liberating one. Our practice, the art and science of meditation, is to achieve that balance which can understand this, which can open, which can open to this. Because it's right here now. It's not something we have to get. Rather, it's something we have to realize. How do we do it? What are the tools for doing it? One of the tools in practice is the development of concentration. With a distracted mind, it's very difficult to see anything clearly. So we work at collecting. We work at gathering the attention and concentrating it. A few suggestions for deepening concentration quickly. One is continuity of noting. The more continuous you can be, the faster the concentration gets strong. If there are a lot of gaps, of long gaps, where the mind is wandering or getting lost, then each time we have to begin again. And we have to start building it again. If we can be fairly continuous, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. We build a base, which we then have access to. So don't neglect the small things, the small movements, the in-between times, because that's what's going to give you the power in your practice. It's the attention to detail, the attention to the small movements that builds the continuity. It's the development of concentration, it's the development of mindfulness, of this sustained attention throughout the day. Sometimes people confuse mindfulness with grimness, especially at the beginning. And you see people walking around being very grim, as if somehow that's going to aid the concentration. Grimness and attention are two entirely different mental factors. Grimness is grimness. The quality that we're talking about is very light. It's very delicate. It's very soft. You can be noting continuously with a very light touch keep a half-smile in the mind. The image that I like very much to describe the quality of the awareness is the image of a Japanese tea ceremony. Because in the tea ceremony, there is such a delicate precision of movement and precision of attention. Every single move And there are so many separate, just the whisking of the tea, or the folding of the napkin, or the serving of the tea. Each movement of the hand, of the fingers, of the body, is done with consciousness, with awareness. Combined with that is this amazing sense of grace and of delicacy. It's not heavy, and it's not ponderous, and it's not grim. There's a tremendous beauty in that level of attention. That's the quality to begin developing. Make the whole day a Japanese tea ceremony. As you stand up, it's the standing up ceremony. And as you leave the hall, it's the leaving the hall ceremony and the walking, and moving about. And whatever activity you do, do it ceremoniously. And you'll see then that this, the art of practice becomes very real to you. But actually the noting and the care and the accuracy and the precision can be done with a tremendous grace and tremendous lightness. And that's the integration that we're looking for.